But we're going to continue with the series Mitch kicked off last week, looking at the generosity of God. Pastor Richard will continue with this then next week when he returns from the USA. And ultimately, the series will culminate on Christmas morning. For those of you who perhaps missed last week's message, I encourage you to download it from the church website. Mitch did a wonderful job of introducing the idea of God's generosity and specifically looking at Psalm 104, which speaks of God's generosity in and through creation. I know the people get nervous when the church starts to talk of generosity with the immediate reaction being that the church is going to be looking for more money. Well, I can give you my absolute assurance that this is not the case. There's not another building project in the pipeline. Uh, The elders are not looking to take an overseas trip. The pastors don't have a Christmas wish list that they're going to spring on you at the end of the series. And in fact, I wish that our purpose in this new series were actually that simple. An appeal for finances would be pretty easy. Uh, Raising funds would be mission accomplished in no time. But what we hope to achieve through this series is something far greater. Our desire is to see real life change. Our prayer is that these messages would touch every heart and that God would challenge you to see the world differently. Our prayer is that your mindset, that your worldview would be altered and aligned with God's view of this world and with God's purposes. Now, you might think that I'm overselling the series a little bit, but let me assure you that I'm not. Pastor Richard commented to me how impactful this material had been in his life, and I can testify to the same, even as I have been preparing for this morning. If you will really take to heart the messages of the next three or four weeks, beautiful, albeit broken world. So I trust that you're ready to journey with me as we continue to explore the theme of generosity that runs right throughout Scripture. I missed last week's message. I have downloaded it since, but we had our Kensington church plant service. So I wasn't here when Mitch spoke on Psalm 104. But I know that psalm is a wonderful psalm that celebrates God's greatness, His majesty, His Sovereign rule over all creation. It talks of God's work in creation, of his providence, of his dominion over all. It talks of God's bountiful provision. It talks of God's generosity. And Psalm 104 is largely a poetic review of Genesis chapter 1. At our church plant service, we looked at Genesis Chapter 1, also getting on board with this series. And whether you look at Psalm 104 or at Genesis chapter 1, what you have is a beautiful portrait of God as the generous host of all creation. God appoints humanity as his partners, as his co-rulers over creation, and God supplies for all their needs. And he asks them to trust his generosity and to live by his wisdom. And this is where we pick up the story this morning. At the end of Genesis chapter 2, it all sounds good. In fact, it all sounds very good. And God declares it to be 
very good. But then man begins to doubt God's generosity. And man begins to question. You're all no doubt very familiar with the children's nursery rhyme about an egg that had an unfortunate tumble. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. But apparently the original form of this was a riddle which asked the question, what when broken can never be repaired, not even by strong and wise men? And as every child knows, the answer is an egg. I'm sure that Genesis chapter 3 is also familiar to most of you. It tells of a serpent in the garden. It tells of temptation and forbidden fruits and deception and a violation of God's command. And it tells of the price paid for that disobedience. If you like, in short, Genesis chapter 3 is about that which is broken and that which the wisest and strongest men cannot fix. In fact, from Genesis chapter 3, right through the rest of Scripture, and even right up until today, you have mankind trying in their own might and in their own strength to return to Eden. Like Frank Sinatra said, they want to do it their way. But there is no going back. The eggs have been broken and all attempts to put things back together just make a bigger and bigger mess. Unlike Humpty Dumpty, Genesis chapter 3 is no nursery rhyme. It's no riddle. In fact, I want to state it plainly at the outset. I believe Genesis chapter 3 to be an accurate historical record of what actually happened in the garden. Many who comment on Genesis chapter 3 turn it into something other than an historical account of a real event. But I believe it to be as the word of God says it to be. Let's read Genesis chapter 3 and verses 1 to 13 together. You've got your Bibles, you can turn there, otherwise it will be up. On the screen, Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will, certain, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruits of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound 
of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. We'll just read that for for this morning. You can read the rest of the chapter at home if you like, because if you don't understand this chapter, you will struggle to make sense of the rest of Scripture. You cannot understand the solution to the problem if you do not understand the problem itself. You cannot understand the cure if you do not understand the diagnosis. You will never understand God's remedy for this world if you do not understand the condition under which this world lives and functions. This chapter may well be the most important chapter in all of the Bible. This chapter explains absolutely everything about this universe and about our lives. It explains why things are the way they are. It explains why we are the way we are. As Bible teacher John MacArthur says, all the problems of the universe have their origin in the events of this historic account. Physical problems, spiritual problems, moral problems, social problems, economic problems, political problems. All the problems of the universe have their origin in the events of this historic account. Genesis chapter 3 provides understanding as to why we live in a world of poverty and it warns against the potential problem of abundance. And this morning as we consider poverty and abundance, scarcity and generosity, there are three things that I want to look at. Firstly, the deception. Secondly, the real problem. And then finally, the result. Deception has been part of warfare since the time of the Trojan horse. This past week, I was watching a documentary on World War II, and members of the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops used special weapons like dummy and inflatable planes, tanks, and anti-aircraft guns, and amplified war sounds to fool the German high command, and so enable a combat unit to change positions or even attack when the Germans thought they hadn't moved at all. The 1,800 men of the 23rd Division would move in at night and change insignias, and they would inflate rubber decoys. Meanwhile, the troops that they were replacing would sneak away to do battle elsewhere. The men of the 23rd became known as the Ghost Army. Well, long before mankind was using deception in warfare, Satan was doing so. Right back in the Garden of Eden, Satan engaged in the art of deception. To deceive means to lie, to mislead, to misinform, to lead astray. 
And this is the method that Satan used to drag the entire human race into sin and be warned that he still uses deceit today. First thing the snake does is to undermine the trust that Eve has in God. In the garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had everything they needed. In fact, they had everything they could possibly want. And there was only one restriction given to them by God. And that's precisely what Satan focuses on when he comes to Eve and he asks, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And Eve corrects the snake, but the power of suggestion is already out there. And in fact, what both the snake and what Eve said is a distortion of what God had said. Satan questions whether they are not to eat from any tree in the garden. And Eve adds to that which God had said when she says they may not even touch the tree in the middle of the garden. And with these distortions, God's truthfulness is called into question. And Satan quickly moves on from the power of suggestion to directly contradicting that which God had said. In Genesis 2 verse 17, God said, You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. In 3 verse 4, Satan says, You will not certainly die. Essentially, Satan is saying, Here is what God knows, but he's not telling you. And so Satan firstly distorts the truth. He then directly contradicts what God has said. And then, as a final blow in his master deception, he tricks Eve into thinking that she is missing out. He tells Eve, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so Eve starts to consider the forbidden tree. And Eve notices that it's good for food and a delight to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. And so what starts with deception and doubt ends with disobedience and death. Satan has not changed his approach. He still uses the same tactics today. Satan still wants us to focus on that which we do not have. He wants us to doubt what God has said in his word. He wants us to desire experiences that will briefly stimulate and satisfy our senses, but ultimately fail to fulfill us. The bottom line, when you peel away all the layers of Satan's deception, that which Satan is trying to convince Eve of, the lie that Satan wants you and I to believe is this. God has not truly given me that which I need to flourish. Let me say that again. The lie that Satan wants you and I to believe is this. God has not truly given me everything that I need to flourish. And this is what leads to a scarcity mindset. When we fall for Satan's deception, when we buy into this lie, the lie that God has not given me all that I need to succeed, the lie that God has not given me all that I need to thrive, all that I need to flourish, we are then left 
with a scarcity mindset. Before we move on to look at the real problem, let me briefly unpack what I mean by a scarcity mindset. And perhaps this is easiest done by comparing an abundant mindset to a scarcity mindset. First, thinking big versus thinking small. Eve allowed a focus to be drawn to a single tree where in reality she lived in the beautiful, I imagine, huge garden of Eden, and yet she got fixated on one tree. Second, plenty versus lack. Eve focused on that which she lacked, that one tree from which she had been told not to eat, instead of focusing on all that God had given to her. Third, happiness versus resentment. And I'm not sure whether Eve resented not being able to eat from that tree, but certainly in the world today, those with a scarcity mindset begin to resent that which they don't have and resent those that do have. And they cannot be genuinely happy for those who have and for those who succeed. Fourth, embrace life versus a fear of missing out. Those with an abundant mindset embrace all that they've been given. Eve, instead of embracing all that she'd been given, feared that God was holding out on her. Fifth, looking ahead versus looking for shortcuts. Instead of considering the consequences of their actions, Adam and Eve took the shortcut, believing that eating from the tree would make them like God. And number six, taking responsibility versus blaming others. Adam and Eve adopt a victim mentality. Adam blames Eve, and ultimately he's blaming God. This woman you gave me. Essentially, I went to sleep single, and I woke up married, is what Adam says to God. It's your fault. You gave this woman to me. And of course, then Eve blames the snake. And I'm sure there's a whole lot of others that we could add to this scarcity versus abundant mindset. But the great deception, the con which says that God has not given me all that I need to flourish, the lie which leads to a scarcity mindset has affected every human being from that time on. When Satan deceived Eve and she and Adam disobeyed God, sin entered the world. And we've been dealing with the consequences ever since, with our natural inclination being that of a scarcity mindset. That's the deception, the lie that the devil has been repeating since time immemorial. But let's consider, what is the real problem? What is the heart of the problem? And and as is so often the case in our Christian walk, the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. The problem that leads to a scarcity mindset is is not a lack of resources. A lack of resources does not lead to a scarcity mindset. A scarcity mindset ultimately stems from a lack of trust 
in God. In a Christian walk, we should be like a little guy named Zach. Zach and his dad were out in the country and they were climbing around some cliffs. And all of a sudden, dad hears a yell from above. Hey, dad, catch me. Dad turns to see Jack, uh, Zach joyfully launch himself off a rock right at dad. And dad does something of a circus act and he manages to catch Zach and they both fall to the ground. It takes dad a minute to catch his breath and find his voice before he gasps in exasperation. Zach, can you give me one good reason why you did that? And with remarkable calmness, Zach responds, sure, because you're my dad. Zach's whole assurance was based on the fact that his dad is trustworthy. He could live life to the hilt because his dad could be trusted. How much more so for us as Christians? God gives generously, but instead of seeing and trusting God's generosity, humans desire and they take that which is not rightfully theirs. And in so doing, it leads to lack for others. It leads to others living in poverty. Instead of imitating our Father in heaven, the generous host of all creation, we covet and we hoard. Eve, having been deceived, failed to take God at his word. She coveted the fruit that was pleasing to the eye and she stretched out her hand and she took hold of that which was not legitimately hers. When we fail to trust God, when we disobey God, when we eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when we assume responsibility for defining good from evil, that is to say to eat from the tree is to reject the wisdom of God and to replace it with our own wisdom. Instead of trusting God to teach us and to lead us and to guide us and to direct us, we start down the slippery slope of a scarcity mindset. Many of us here have the tendency to evaluate the goodness of our lives by the amount of financial security that we have or by the possessions that we have. And these things have the potential to become idols in our lives. Listen to what Romans 1 verse 20 to 25 says. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. 
Each one of us has the propensity to exchange the truth of God for a lie and to worship and to serve something which is created rather than our creator. Man's inclination, man's default state of being is to worship things made rather than the one who made them. In reality, all modern-day idols can be seen as a form of self-worship. Self-worship when we, is when we believe that we should be satisfied rather than God glorified. We believe and we think and we act as though God has been made for us rather than we having been made for him. Ruth Graham, in her book, Prodigals and Those Who Love Them, quotes the 17th century theologian Samuel Rutherford. The English is a little bit old, but it's worth trying to understand. Duties are ours. Events are God's. When our faith goes to meddle with events and to hold account upon God's providence and beginneth to say, how wilt thou do this or that? We lose ground. We have nothing to do there. It is our part to let the Almighty exercise his own office and steer his own helm. There is nothing left for us but to see how we may be approved of him and how we roll the weight of our weak souls upon him who is God omnipotent. Fundamentally, the choice that Adam and Eve made in the garden and the choice that echoes down through the ages and into our own lives is that of a deliberate attempt to rise above our creaturely status. The first human beings were not content to be image bearers, to have a derivative authority, to assume a secondary position. They wanted to be like God in a way that they were never intended to be. The story of the fall is the story of our lives. It is the story of trying to overstep the limits of our creation and our failure to trust God, to trust that God has ordered for all things for the benefit of his creation. So the deception, the lie that Satan would have us believe is that God has not truly given me that which I need to flourish. The real heart of the problem is my failure to trust God, to overstep my position as the created and to take hold of that which is not legitimately mine, which leads to my heart being hijacked by selfishness and by greed, by sin. And the result, it's an abuse of God's generosity. You can thrive in abundance, but you can also create chaos from abundance when you seize it and you try to control it. Stephen Covey said this, most people are deeply scripted in what I call the scarcity mentality. They see life as having only so much as though there were only one pie out there. And if someone were to get a big piece of the pie, it would mean less for everyone else. God is the generous host of creation. But when I forget my role as the created and I forget that all that I have 
is a gift from God. I then begin to attribute that which I do have to my own power and to my own wisdom. In fact, in the very next chapter, in chapter 4, we see Eve do this. In 4 verse 1, Eve gives birth to a son and she says, With the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. In the Hebrew, this statement consists of just four words. It literally says, I have created a man with the Lord. And so we can appreciate the English translation, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. But in fact, there are a number of ways in which this statement could be translated. And in particular, that word with, I've created a man with the Lord. In the Ten Commandments, this word with is used when God says, don't have any gods with me. In other words, don't have any gods in comparison to me. In the story of Joseph, we read, Potiphar put Joseph in charge of all things and did not know anything with Joseph. That is in comparison to Joseph. And so we could understand Eve's statement, I've created a man with the Lord as Eve comparing herself to God. God created the first man, Adam. I, Eve, have created the second man, Cain. Eve's very existence is a gift from God. Eve's ability to have children is a gift from God. But she attributes this gift to her own creative power. And we're not too different. We see all that God has given us as being by our own power and by our own wisdom. We forget that all we have is a gift. And we begin to think that it's all me. I have done this by my strength, by my ability, by my hard work and in my wisdom. Forgetting that even those things, my strength, my wisdom, my ability to work are all in fact a gracious gift from God. It's interesting to note that following the killing of Cain, or of Cain killing Abel, Eve gives birth to another son, to Seth. And this time she says, God has granted me another son. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? The result of Satan's deception and my mistrust in God as the generous host of all creation is a completely skewed view of the world and my place in it. It results in a scarcity mindset that focuses on all that I don't have instead of recognizing all that has been given to me. A scarcity mindset begins to justify my selfish ambition and my selfish behavior. And that spirals downward from there into disputes and division and dissension and strife and the breakdown of relationships and loneliness and even violence and ultimately into destruction and death. And if you don't believe me, read through the rest of the book of Genesis. From the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, through the story of the flood, the Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, Jacob stealing Esau's birthright, Joseph sold into slavery, deception, lies, bitterness, anger, and even murder. At no time does God compel Adam 
and Eve to obey. He does not create them as puppets that he can manipulate as he wants. He gives them the freedom to choose to love him and to obey him. The fact that this freedom was and is abused should not minimize the significance of the gift that God gave and continues to give as the generous host of all creation. And this morning you have a choice to make. Throughout Scripture, God's people were given a choice. Moses said to the people, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, Blessings and curses, now choose life so that you and your children may live. Joshua, renewing the God's covenant with his people, said, Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. God honors the choices we make, even when they're bad ones and only lead to misery. God works with and through human choices and the consequences they lead to. The book of Genesis tells much of what we experience in our lives today. It tells of the lack that we may sometimes experience or even the lack that is a daily reality for so many. It tells of the selfishness and the greed of the coveting and the hoarding that is so evident in our world. And it explains something of the scarcity mindset that plagues so many. However, the good news is that the story does not end with Genesis. Sin doesn't have the last word. A scarcity mindset doesn't have to be your daily reality. We have the privilege and the freedom in our lives every day to embrace our position as dependent creatures, stewards of the good world that God has made, We can live with an abundant mindset and we can partner with God in the process of redeeming this world. In closing, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. We are tempted to think that we'll be happy when we have accumulated enough. But Scripture consistently emphasizes The life we truly desire comes when we give, not when we consume, not when we hoard. An experience seems to confirm this truth. Have you ever met an unhappy, generous person? Do not view generosity or an abundant mindset or giving as an obligation but rather view it as a response to God's grace in our lives. Steve Atkinson, the executive director of the Bible Project, says, Generosity is a rebellious act against our culture. By it, we say no to a scarcity mindset and yes 
to Jesus. Jesus who says we are enough and we have enough. This allows God's grace to flow freely into our lives and through us to others. When we realize the depths of God's grace in our lives, we can confidently say, I have everything. Therefore, I am free to give everything. Generosity extends beyond finances. We can adopt a posture of making ourselves ready and making ourselves available to God with everything, including our time and resources. It is possible to be generous in thought and in word and in deed. God is going to accomplish that which he has set out to do with or without us. But we are invited to join him in that which he is doing. A helpful practice is to ask throughout your day, God, what do you want me to do with that which I've been given? My prayer for you this morning is that you would have an abundant mindset and that you would be a conduit of God's grace in the world. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge you this morning as the generous host of all creation. Father, we recognize that every good and every perfect gift comes from your hand. We know that you are Jehovah Jireh, our provider. Father, too often we've been deceived into thinking that you're holding out on us, that you've not provided or that you might at some point fail us. Our trust in you has faltered and we have coveted and hoarded and kept to ourselves the good things that you have called us to share with others. Father, forgive us and cleanse us. Renew our hearts and our minds. Father, make us a conduit of your grace to this world, a world that is broken, a world that still reels from the effects of the fall. fall. Father, we thank you that you never gave up on us, but came to redeem and one day we'll make all things new. And we thank you that we can partner with you to bring hope and healing through our generosity to others. Even as we've freely received, may we freely give. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.